Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're real excited to be on this podcast going deeply into how Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and other great investors that we call ruler-type investors or rule-number-one investors, how they do it and what are the rules they follow and how can the little guy do it too or can the little guy do it too, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's... Because obviously the big argument among the giant financial services industry people is you can't do it. You can't do it, right? And a lot of times I think of this in terms of uh, the way it was thought about literacy, say, five or 600 years ago before Gutenberg invented a printing press. Have I ever talked to you about that? Have you talked to me about how Gutenberg invented the printing press? No, what it did to the world and then what the Internet's doing to the world now as a, as a parallel? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> should, I, should I not talk about it now? Is it the obvious analogy or is there... Please, go ahead. I'm curious Okay, well, now. I'm going to dive into it because I, th- I think it's really important <laughs> as we um, start thinking about who our leaders are, who, you know, who we want to have represented in us. And we're going to talk a little bit today, I think, about a combination of a couple of huge companies and what does that do to the world and all that stuff. And part of the way to think about this, I think, is to remember that 600 years ago, before the printing press was invented the vast majority of people were illiterate. And those who were literate kept the, the, the tools of literacy, books, in libraries that were locked. The books were locked with chains, right? Game of Thrones libraries, all chained up. And um, to protect these very, very valuable books, because books were extremely expensive, which means yeah. knowledge is extremely expensive. They were And so the priest class, either intentionally or unintentionally, kept people ignorant. Right, so you have this group, this sort of aristocracy of intellectual people, and and the kings, and then the vast majority of us were peasants, and just worked for them, and didn't have knowledge about what was going on in the world, and so we didn't really have much choice. And then Gutenberg had been in the printing press; they started printing Bibles. Missionaries took the Bibles out all over the place and gave them away, and all of a sudden, the tools of literacy became widely available. And then what happened was democracy started to flourish. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, 600 years ago. Now, today, the internet has come along and it's made the tools in our field, the tools of financial literacy available that used to cost $50,000 a year for Value Line. When I first started, I'd have to go to the library and, and look up Value Line. Today, that information is free. It's all over the internet for free. You can go to MSN Money, you can go to Google, you can go to Yahoo, you can go all over the place and gather data about companies. And so instead of having this uh, lack of tools, the individual investor, the same, the same peasants, the aristocracy said, couldn't be literate, couldn't read, it was too hard, too difficult. Now, all of those same kinds of people, the little guy, us, is finding that the tools of financial literacy are not indecipherable. Hey, mm-hmm. son of a gun, they're not that hard. Mm-hmm. And that's what this podcast, I think, ultimately is all about is we're out to create a kind of revolution of financial literacy, make you guys aware that you can do this. This is not rocket science, no matter what they tell you on TV. Yeah. You can do this stuff. And not only have the tools become much more free, uh, but the process of actually buying and selling, making transactions, has actually become free. 
And that's been a huge revolution just in the last year. It was in the last couple of years, there have been a couple apps that have come out that have offered free transactions. Um, because when you're, and this matters to us, because when you're a little investor, when you're just investing your own money and it's not a ton, those transaction costs of, let's say, it used to be like 15 bucks to buy something or sell something, and then it went down to like 11, and then it was seven, and then it was like five. That can really be a big difference when you're only investing a small amount of money. So to us, this really matters. And so these apps came out and started to offer free transactions um, and virtually no research uh, sources. And then now, all of a sudden, in just in the last few months, these very large brokerage houses have started to offer free transactions in order to compete because they were getting bit into by these small apps. So the, the democratization just continues. It's extraordinary. And it's shocking to Wall Street. I, I'm telling yeah. you, I, back, I've, I've been around a while, so I've gone through this transition, and I just remember so vividly reading in the Wall Street Journal in the late 1990s how Merrill Lynch was telling all of its brokers to not deal with anybody who has less than $100,000. Because mm. the commission structures were dropping with this yeah. internet stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you can't, you know, you don't get a big enough commissions, you don't get a big enough fees. You can't, and, you, they and, just can't keep their business up. Yeah, it's no, that they simple. used to charge, back in the 80s when I started, they were charging 1% of the cost of the purchase. So if you bought, let's say, $100,000 worth of stocks, you'd pay $1,000 to do that to a broker. Really? So it yeah. wasn't a flat fee. It was a percentage. It was a percentage back oh. then. And then if you wanted to sell them, another $1,000. Yeah. And you guys, this is the classic part of this. That broker who was getting 1000 bucks, his costs were pennies. Yeah. Oh, it was all secret priesthood stuff, right? They were all behind the curtain. It was the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain of intimidation and ignorance of, of this game that financial services industry are playing to protect their turf. Well, they had to pay for their business, and that's how they paid for their business was through transaction fees. That's right. They paid for their business the way casinos do. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you have these gigantic buildings. you got casinos, banks, and Wall Street investment bankers who are in huge buildings named for their company. And that's, you know, <laughs> hey, we got so much money, we don't know what to do with it, so we're just going to build a building. <laughs> Why not? So that's that was a game being played on the little guy. And I'm telling you, man, it was a shock to the industry over the 70s and 80s when they found out from academic research that nobody, no, none of the investment banker experts were beating the market. Mm-hmm they were all failing to beat just an index of the market. Now, from that came a wrong conclusion. And the wrong conclusion is that, well, by academia, is that, well, if, if, if the experts at Goldman Sachs can't beat the market, then <laughs> uh, no one can. And they, they divined an academic theory called modern portfolio theory that's taught in all the Ivy League schools, that's taught all over the world, that the market is efficiently priced, and that is the market values and the market prices are the same thing. That, of course, means you can't beat the market. So there shouldn't ever be a Warren Buffett or a Charlie Munger, or Mike, are you, God help us if there's a Jim Simon, right, from Renaissance. Uh, who, who just wrote this book that just came out, which is probably why I it's know, on your I just mind. Got so excited. Have you Simon. started reading that book? I haven't. I'm I haven't started reading it either. That's what we'll do, Dad. We'll read it over the holidays and then over we can the holidays talk about for it. Sure. Uh, what's because the name of the Jim, book? Do you remember? 
Oh, I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to pull it up because, because, yeah. Simon's Renaissance Group, this is just a small number of people who pooled their own money and decided to do uh, quantitative analysis. So these guys are like the original quants. They they just do mathematical analysis. They don't invest the way Buffett does or the way I do. But they are very effective at finding inefficiencies in the market that's supposed to be efficient. And they have compounded money at 70% per year now for 30 years. The other part of modern portfolio theory is that um, that the market, you, you know, you should be taking a large, large risk to make a huge return. And over 30 years, those risks are going to catch up with you. You're going to have big losses in there somewhere. And that's just not the case at all. Simon's group, their worst five-year period was a half percent loss. Wow. That's the worst of all the five-year periods they've had in 30 years. The worst one was a half percent loss. Um, another guy, Ed Thorpe, another really effective quant looking for inefficiencies in the market, compounded money at 28% for 30 or 20, I guess 25 years. He made 200 million bucks, 28% and never had a losing month, Danielle. That's When you say part. quant, you mean that's short for quantitative. And that means that they use all sorts of data, computer models, algorithms to figure out what to... Okay, so I was going to say to invest in, but I'm not even sure that they're investors by our standard definition. I think it's a little bit oh, more speculation. Because no they're, they're in... Yeah, they're in and out a lot. Um, all right, so the book is called... And I think this is the right one because it just came out. The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons yeah. Launched the Quant Revolution. Yeah? yeah it's by Gregory it. Zuckerman. And it just came out in November. Um, and there was an excerpt in the Wall Street Journal, which was quite intriguing and somewhat became the talk of investor land. So, yeah, I'm excited to read this one, too. Yeah, I, I think that um, these books th- these books are talking about people who are brilliant at quantitative analysis. Let's not, let's not get that wrong. I don't expect that I can go out... <clears throat> yeah, read a book it's about a Jim totally and, different thing than <laughs> it's a whole different Buffett world. value investing for right. sure. But it's really interesting to learn how people beat the market. Yeah, it's a, it, I said wild speculators. That's really wrong. They're very conservative speculators. Um, I just remember when, um, let's see, when Ed Thorpe figured out his invention on or his numbers on how to do Mart. Um, how to do warrants, some guys picked up on it using the Kelly, the, the Kelly formula and were able to go into the horse racing business, not even business, the horse racing gambling business and killed it. They, they put together syndications. Like one guy made $150 million before he told anybody what he was doing. And what they're doing is they're doing probability analysis and it's really effective if you have an edge. And Simon and these guys get an edge by looking at deep data, for example, when it gets um, a, a, f- a future rainstorm is coming into Paris, uh, Paris, France, then you can short the French market for a day or so. Mm-hmm. And they w- so they would do this kind of deep analysis going back 100 years and come up with wild, cool trades that were highly likely to succeed. Yeah, they find all these doing it. obscure <laughs> connections that without massive computer models you wouldn't be able to figure it out but it's like the weather is coming into paris which affects what's happening in nice which affects the boats coming in to the harbor and 
can, which affects yachting, which affects oil prices, which something, something, (laughs) and then like a fly lands on a leaf and they know how to invest for that. It's like amazing. Butterfly flaps its wings in Kiev and and they they can figure out what's going to change. Exactly. And, And so this, of course, isn't for us. We don't know how to do that. What it points to, and the reason we bring it up is because it points to the really massive inefficiencies of the market. They're all over the place if you have the skill to find them. And we don't have the skill to find those kinds of of subtle inefficiencies and work on them, or large ones, I guess some of them are. What we do have is the ability to be patient and wait and stay in cash and have a list of great companies that are going to go on sale eventually because they always have in the past, so it's a little bit of inductive logic there. And they will shortly go on sale. They did in 2009, 2008, 2009. And they will again. And when that happens, we can load up the truck. And as an example, a, a, a paper portfolio put together in one of our classes in 2000, actually our first class in 2009 in Singapore, produced returns. And this is a paper portfolio. It wasn't any real money. But and the students I built a portfolio. I will point out that it was in 2009. I'm sorry to tell mm-hmm. you. It was in 2009. Yeah, it's what hard did I to say? Get, hard to get better than that. Yeah, you said 2009. I'm just pointing out. <laughs> Oh, it right. was in 2009. And it was the first one. So in all fairness, we didn't, we didn't know for sure. Well, actually, I'd already been on the air saying we're getting back in the market because it's looking great <laughs> for these companies. So it was set up perfectly. And this, this, this portfolio did 32% compounded over 10 years with a 1,250% return hmm. compared to a 300% return in the S&P 500. So the result was 100,000 invested in the S&P became 313,000. And that same 100,000 invested in these 10 stocks left alone, don't do anything, not including dividends, was 1.25 million. Point being that the inefficiency of recessions creates an enormous opportunity for us um, and that's our baseline. And our baseline is, hey, every five to, to 10 years, we're going to get a recession. We're going to be able to invest like crazy in great companies. All you got to do is just know what a great company looks like. And yeah. It's going to go on sale. So, so we've that's had, you know, 240 here. episodes on what a great company looks like. And I think we we're going to have a few more. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about and one in particular that came up recently? Sure. So well, are we going to do questions today too? No, we're doing quick questions next time. Okay, next time. Because this time, I want to talk about this piece of news that just came out yesterday um, with what one company thinks is a great company. So speaking of um, of lowered brokerage costs, TD yes. Ameritrade and Charles Schwab are two of the biggest brokerages, they may be the two biggest brokerages in the U.S. And it was just announced that Charles Schwab is going to buy TD Ameritrade for $26 billion. Um, so the deal is not closed yet, but it was announced yesterday, Monday. And uh, and it's it's a really, I think it's really topical for us because we are all small investors and we've all been riding through this period of um, a real change in the brokerage world where, as I said, apps uh, were coming out, like Robinhood came out and was completely free and other ones were also free or very, very low cost. And these big brokerage companies were really up against it with them because so many people were switching. And um, and Charles Schwab has come out recently with being all about customer service and 
um, helping you find companies with great missions and purposes, which is cool of them. And they also went to $0 transactions. So they were fighting directly with these apps, but while still being a full-service brokerage. And now they're out to buy Ameritrade. So the interesting thing for us is what's going to happen in the future of the brokerage world as consumers? And then what's going to happen as investors? There's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today, or maybe it came out yesterday, about um, investment advisors actually being concerned from a monopoly perspective about this combination of companies. I think they own together something like, and I'm trying to find the number, I'm going to say it's 51% of all brokerage accounts in the U.S. So they, together, Charles Schwab, once the, once the deal goes through, would own more than half of the brokerage assets in the U.S. And it just leaves, um, you know, small account holders with not that many options. So I think that it's interesting for us to think about how is this, like, is this a good idea? And I'm sort of debating it. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm trying to get a, you know, it's trying to, these are not companies that are definitely in my wheelhouse, but I can, I can put them into my wheelhouse pretty easily. They're not that hard to understand what their model is. And, um, and we sort of have to look at, at, I think, why would they do this? In, in other words, are they improving their moat? When you're looking at companies combining, what, what you're often looking for is, how are they improving themselves as a result of this combination? And unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is you have a management team that's just simply trying to grow their company because management CEOs and their top executives get paid based on how big the company is. And size is relative to revenue. Yeah. So if they can combine with another company and increase their revenue a lot, then they can go back to their board and say, now I'm running so much a bigger company, I deserve another $10 million of, of, of uh, unearned salary. Yeah. And so... I think it's also... Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say that I was right. It's 51... They would have 51% of the market or $2.1 trillion of assets in custody, which is crazy. Right. So the, the first thing is if they're... If their combination is giving them a dominant share of the market, that's very moaty stuff, right? Yeah. That's a, I think a durable competitive advantage. Another big reason that companies buy other companies is to remove a competitor. And right. Ameritrade is probably the main competitor up against Schwab. And the other ones would all be much, much smaller if this deal goes through, giving them, as you pointed out, a bigger moat. Right. And what the, the next thing that happens is not not just size matters, but also your cost structure is very important in a price-sensitive market. People don't think of their broker as a brand. Right. They, they, they're locked in a little bit on a switch mode, but it's not that hard to move your account to a different hard. brokerage. No. It takes a day or two. And, uh, but they, they don't think, oh, well, I'm really getting a TD Ameritrade brokerage deal here. Mm-hmm. No, it's just, it's whatever it is. It's a, it's a commodity. And in a commodity business, the only moat, um, I guess you could have some secrets moats. Where I mean, what, you're able to what, you, what, what they're trying to offer is resources, research, resources, news, filters, able to find the companies you want, all that kind of stuff. That's what they're trying to offer. I guess. I mean, but I mean, yeah, they are for sure. But why combine with TD? To cut your costs, yeah. you're going to have 
one management team, not two, one research department, not two, right? You, you remove a lot of layers um, when you do this combination. And given the fact that there are brokerages out there that have snuck into this space, um, really following Charles Schwab's business model from 30 years ago, which was to go into a very expensive brokerage space where everybody was doing all this personal stuff, and he put it on a, a much cheaper discount really? brokerage. I don't know Charles the history Schwab. of the company. That's what he did? Yeah, they were, they were the first big discount brokerage. Oh, hey, speaking of Charles Schwab, he stole our book title. What? Did you know that? No, what? His book, which just came out, is called Invested, which I'm taking as a huge compliment Obviously, I'm a little bit annoyed, but I'm taking it as a huge compliment about what a good book title we have that somebody else <laughs> would dare to steal it. But yeah, it's called Invested, it, you know, subtitle, blah, 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 by Charles Schwab. And, and, and guess what, man? That, that puts it right next to us on Amazon. That's right. So I figure it's good for us. <laughs> I think it's good for us. And obviously, they wanted the name so badly that they saw that our book was out there and didn't care. Definitely. Said, it's just too good a name. Yeah. It's too good a name. That's right. So now, I whenever anybody Googles invested Charles Schwab, invested by Phil Town and Danielle Town is going to come up. Exactly. Oh, well so done. We're, I you, feel somewhat connected to Charles Schwab, who is a real person and obviously is still alive. So I don't know the history of how he came into this world, though. You said that he kind of came in as the low cost broker guy. Yeah, he he was he you know Wall Street was a big club, and he came in and kicked the doors open um, with uh, discount stock trading, right? And uh, oh my gosh, it's it's like revolutionary. And oh man, they hated him. I mean, he was really a figure of enormous disdain on Wall Street. Really. Um, yeah. So how did he, he do? But how did he do it little, at a low cost? Do you do you know? Yeah, he lived in a single apartment in Sausalito. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Okay. So, um, I mean, it's a, I think you should read the book. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. I, absolutely, and and it's got a blurb by Buffett. So you know, whenever Buffett says read a book, I'm going to read the book. It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> we tried. We didn't get a blurb, but we did get a very nice email from him. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Pretty sweet. So Schwab kind of now is getting a little taste of his own medicine. Not that he really cares, but Robin Hood came along and made free trades. Hey, do free trades right here. And um, I think Schwab saw the writing on the wall. I mean, it's obviously going on for 30 years. Schwab started it and started cutting into brokerage commissions, and they just kept coming down. When the internet came along, they started dropping like crazy with the advent of E-Trade, TD, uh, well, it was Ameritrade, Ameritrade. originally, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and a, several more that didn't make it all that big, and forced Schwab into an online structure, mm-hmm. right? And, and instead of just discount, they had to go online. And everybody's been watching their commissions come from 1%, so $100,000 of purchases would get you a $1,000 commission. Woohoo! get several of those a day, you're doing all right, mm-hmm. down to... Um, you know, Schwab was down to, I think, four ninety five for as much share, as much as you... That's $4.95, not $400. $4.95 for as much stock as you wanted to buy, a million dollars, whatever. Okay, and then Robinhood came in and went, well, I would just do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
We'll do it for free. And so Schwab was looking at this and just saying, okay, we need to go there. How are we going to do a business model that will let us go there? And acquiring TD Ameritrade, which also went to free, and Schwab went to free. So they just acquired it and said, all right, we're going to cut our costs and we're going to make our money on all these other things. Yeah. So this article in the Wall Street Journal, which I should give you the name. I'll give it to you in a second. It says that... uh, the way they make money with zero commission trades is that they collect interest on the cash balances that are kept in them. So essentially, it's like a bank. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how banks make money. They become more bankerish. And they also, you can write checks against your account. They, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This, t- this article that banky. I keep referencing is called Investment Advisors Fear Losing Out in Schwab TD Ameritrade Deal. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how else they're making money. They're making money on guys like me. How are they making money on guys like you? They don't give me free trades because you professional. Oh, because you're a professional. Yeah. So they say, oh, no, you're going to have to carry some of the freight here. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we push back on that as hard as we can um, and find a brokerage that's, that does a great job and charges the least possible, right? And, but they don't make it free to us. And so they're charging, they charge their, their big institutional accounts for, research and for, you know, access to the markets and for access to traders that'll will handle large trades in the, in a, in a dark market and so on. So, you know, they get, they get money that way too. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this one. I'm really curious to follow it from a monopoly perspective. I'm going to be interested to see what the FTC does and, um, and kind of how this merger goes. So they offered 26 well, you- billion and the Stock price as of today, as of Tuesday, is up now. I think to twenty eight billion already. Twenty eight billion. It was at twenty one when this whole thing started. And to put this in perspective, if you want to play along a little game at home here, um, in terms of what's TD Ameritrade really worth, it might be kind of fun. Um, often we just price things based on cash flow. And if you look at the cash flow coming off of TD Ameritrade right now, just free cash flow, you're looking at about. $7 billion of operating cash and about $200 million of, of CapEx. There's, there's enormous cash flow. And if, if that number is accurately representing the company and is not some aberration, and it may well be since it jumped up huge mm-hmm. over the last year or two. Um, so dig in and see what you can figure out. And we can talk about this down the road in a week or so about where where did that cash jump come from? Is it sustainable or is it just a one-year thing? They sold off some stuff and it's just an accident. Where would you price this company? Because at $28 billion, what that implies is or sorry, $2.8 billion of free cash would be a steal. I mean, if you could buy that for $28 billion and you're getting $2.8 billion in cash, you're stealing the company. Well, shoot, they got... Six billion in cash, which would imply a sixty billion dollar price. So, are they stealing it? Is there something happening with this cash that just happened in one year? So, those are those are things that are not hard to figure out. You guys, we can figure this out. You can take a look at it and start to understand this little company, and say what should Schwab pay for it. So, we're going to pay play a game. Who can get closest <laughs> to what Schwab will actually pay? Kind of be kind of fun. <laughs> All right, let's give it a shot. We'll give it a shot and we'll come back to it, uh, what, in January? Yeah, in January. Well, oh, who man, can let's get Let's come cl- back to it. Okay. Let's come back to it 
as, as soon as we can get some good information. So you give you, all right, we'll talk about it in January. Well, by then they will have actually probably put a deal together and we can look at what comes in from you guys. You guys send us an email. What do you think TD Ameritrade is worth if you were going to really get a good deal on the company? If Schwab's getting a good deal, what, what would it be worth? If Schwab's getting a fair deal, what would it be worth? Hmm. And how much is too much? Hmm. That's what that's what the guys are looking at right now. Mm-hmm. See if you can figure it out. Shoot us an email. Where what is the email address, Dad? Email Do you know our email address? No. <laughs> <laughs> Questions. You're on the spot. Questions at investedpodcast.com. And let's say for this newfound valuation contest, um, put in your subject line what? Schwab value no, Ameritrade. T D. Yeah. Valuation. Yeah, TD Ameritrade Valuation. Questions. Or if you don't want to write all that, put in, <laughs> what's the symbol? <laughs> Just, you know, put some sort of estimate that doesn't involve too many letters. Your fingers don't get too yeah. tired into A-M-T-D. the subject line. <laughs> AMTD is a symbol. <laughs> and uh, shoot that in the subject line, and we will have a little chat about this, see who gets closest. Maybe in a few weeks then. And whoever gets absolute closest... Danielle's going to write you a little note in a book and send it to you. Oh, I love how you just offered me up for that. What if we have to walk to the post office together, Dad, to send it? All right, let's do it. We're going to send you, we're we're going to both write you a little note. And wait, now, if we're going to make this for real, because now you know we're going to get lots of people who send in the same numbers, there's going to be a random drawing at the end. Okay, everybody who gets within, um, everybody who gets within, let's say we're talking twenty-eight billion. If you get within ten percent of the price, what do you we'll mean? 10, what does that even mean? If you get within, you have to turn. I mean, off, like if if turn, if they buy, if they if if Schwab buys the company, this is the most confusing billion. contest I've ever been involved in. Well, hopefully no one will even get involved. We don't <laughs> but if you decide to, if you're within 10%, that is if they buy it for $30 billion and you're at 33 or you're at 27 Okay, wait a second. In that range. So they offered 26 The deal right now is 26 So what yeah. you're saying is that they may change it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what the market's betting right now. You got people buying the stock right now at $28 billion. They're not expecting to sell it for 26 yeah, I don't know. Oh, they're thinking it's going on. So higher. you're not actually asking. So, okay, you're c- completely changing what I thought we were asking. What I thought mm. you were asking is what is your fair value on this company? What would you buy this company for today? Okay, and, that's one thing. And what I think you're actually now saying is what is Charles Schwab going to buy the company for? Right. Right, because you know it's so it's subjective what you think it's worth, but it's objective what they're actually paying. Yeah, that's true. So let's make the assumption that Charles Schwab isn't—they're not stupid—and they're going to pay a fair price. So let's just make that general, pretty invalid assumption. <laughs> they may be paying way more than they should here, but assuming that they're going to pay a pretty fair price, how much will they pay? And we already know they're willing to pay twenty-six. We also already know Mr. Market is betting they're going to pay 28 or more. So what would you pay? Where will they draw the line? So you're asking, what is Charles Schwab going to pay for yeah. 
Ameritrade. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, Figure that out. Send it into what? Questions, questions at investedpodcast.com. Yeah. And, and if you get it within. Furthermore, we reserve the right to do whatever we want with this ridiculous contest. <laughs> since we've. We might apologies. write you. Yeah. We might write you a nice note on your book and send you a book. We might. Or we might right. never mention this again. <laughs> <laughs> we might blow you off. Let's not but do that. Take a shot. Take I like shot. it when we it's follow through with things that we talk All about. Right. Well, you know we're going to follow through because we're going to get hounded if we don't. All right. All right. Cool. So what price is Charles Schwab going to buy Ameritrade for? And yeah. obviously, we won't know the answer to that for maybe quite a while. So this will be ongoing. But it's going to be interesting to watch. And I think actually your first question, Dad, was also on point. Because to figure out what they are probably going to buy it for, I think I need to figure out what I think the fair value of the company is. So we are I on hope, the right I track. I hope all of you are really bad at this because I do not want to write a thousand notes. So We're not going to write a thousand notes. All right. So it's going to be write, close. We we're going to write one. Okay, question. Maybe it'll be a billion. Question. One way or the other. Are we playing Price is Right rules? Do you know what Price is Right What's rules are? What's Price is Right rules? It's what? Think, I didn't watch Price is Right. I'm reading 10Ks. <laughs> what are you doing? I Price was, is Right. I got to watch Price is Right sometimes when I was little. Now, in Happy Gilmore, I really enjoyed Bob Barker getting in a fight. That was way with, later than the Price is Right. The Price is that Right rules, awesome. which every kid knows, I don't care how old you are, is that you try to get as close as you can to the amount without going over. If you go oh, over, you're out. You lose. Yes. Okay, Price is Right rules. Price is Right rules. And it's whoever gets closest. It's not in a range of 10% or 5%. You got to get close and not go over. Yeah. Done. Whoever's closest and doesn't. Okay, that seems good. I think this is That's the best kidding. contest anybody's ever cooked up live is. in about three minutes. <laughs> 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 All right, you guys. If you win this, you're going to stay at Danielle's apartment <laughs> for a week. <laughs> she and Nuno. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I'm kidding. Don't 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 take that for That's real. Okay. Happening. That's no. That was not gonna happen. <laughs> um, okay. We gotta go. I also think I just realized this episode may air on a different date than what I think it will. So if you're hearing all of this and it's past the date of November twenty sixth, go back. And look at what was happening with the stock then, because that's what we're talking about. And then check out what's happening with the stocks now, because probably a lot of things have changed. So that'll be very interesting. All right. Play along at home. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thanks, everybody. We'll Bye. See Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice 
because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.